I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This episode contains explicit language. Please be advised. Hello, I'm Martine Saint-Victor. And I'm Isabelle Racico, and this is Seat at the Table, the show where Martine and I like to talk to people shaping media, sports, and pop culture. And this season, we've been talking about the power of the Black Lives Matter movement, the urgency of this moment, and how to really move forward. This is the final episode of our second season. But a uh, little fun fact here, the idea mm-hmm. of doing a media episode was the very first thing we thought about because in our case, um, it was really through media that we came to realize that something different was happening. It is not incumbent upon black people to stop racism. To stop this, it is incumbent upon people who hold the power in this society to help to do that, to do the heavy lifting. And guess who that is? Who is that, Chris? White people. Talking about does systemic racism exist in Canada, can white people use the N-word, which they know they very well shouldn't, is run around for the real conversation. What are we going to do? As a black man, as a former player, I think it's best for me to support the players and just not be here tonight. That was first Don Lemon talking to Chris Cuomo on CNN, and then it was TSN's Kayla Gray. And there were so many other moments like that. There was a flurry, an an avalanche of people just coming out and being fed up. And it's through the media that we've been trying to make sense of all this, the madness of this year. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the death of so many others at the hands of, of, of the police. And so I'm excited that we get to speak to one of the brilliant writers who have been helping us grasp this moment. I actually don't think that we should lower ourselves to be as mediocre as white men. I think that they should raise themselves to be as excellent as black people. Roxane Gay is a best-selling author and a New York Times contributing writer. She joins us at the table. And so if we could pinpoint one moment that was the tipping point uh, for you and I, Isabel, this year, in the media at least, it is the moment with Gail King. Once again, I say, thank goodness that there's videotape. You know, I think as the daughter of a black man and the mother of a black man, this is really too much for me today. I'm still rattled by that last story. And she's practically strangling her dog, practically strangling her dog to make these false accusations against another black man. I'm still so upset, Vlad. I'm so sorry. I'm still so upset by that last story where the man is handcuffed underneath a car where people are pleading, please, he can't breathe, and we're watching a man die. So we go from that story now to this story where she falsely accuses a black man on television. I mean, I I don't even know what to do or how to handle this at this particular time. I know that this is, 
I, I, I am speechless. I'm really, really speechless about what we're seeing on television this morning. It feels to me like an open season and that it's just a not sometimes a safe place to be in this country for black men. And today is too much for me. Tony and Anthony, I, I'm going to turn it over to you, too. Oh, I remember that moment as if it was yesterday. It was the 26th of May, so it was the day, the morning after George Floyd was murdered. And she was also referring to the story in Central Park that was breaking that morning where Amy Cooper, a white woman, was menacing a black bird watcher and really basically using her white privilege to threaten the life of a black man. Mm -hmm. And when I saw, because that's what I do in life, right? I, I, I'm a television host and you try to, as much as possible, keep your emotions in check and to see Gail be so honest and become so emotional about what was going on. She was no longer being a television host. She was just a person. We could feel her pain. It was difficult to watch, first of all, because Gail King has always been optimistic. She always sees the sunny sides. Mm -hmm. I think this is, who, this is who she is. And she reminds me a lot of you, Isabel, in that sense. And to see her break down on live television, mm -hmm. on a morning show. A morning show usually is like, you're, you're, chippy. you're, you're between like the news about like some dumb internet sensation and like rice pilaf. And so to see that, it was like, okay, you know what? The tone has changed. And the reaction to that moment as well was immediate. Yeah. Online, it yeah. was like, okay, something's different. Yeah. And, and one thing I'm also thankful, especially to the American media, is, is that they were covering in real time the protest and really giving the Black Lives Matter movement the light and the importance mm -hmm. that, that it deserved. It deserved. Mm -hmm. And day after day after day, and I thought, okay, this is going to be the last time we're going to hear about it. Nope. Next day uh -huh. it was coming back. Then it switched to journalists talking about the treatment they were getting inside the newsroom. Mm -hmm. Black anchors and journalists breaking their silence. It, it kept on coming and coming yeah, and coming. It's about, it it about the experience and the inequality and justice in their experiences. And I think one of the moments in Canada that really, and Isabel, you and I talked about it many times, is when Tyrone Edwards oh. also opened up um, on CTV, and that was just something else. And I'll get through these tears and these feelings. But what I want to say is, from here on out, I am no longer going to mute how I feel. Every time I hear it, I still, you know, get goosebumps but i find that in quebec <laughs> in quebec not many people were speaking out no i mean we reached out to a few black journalists in quebec and they didn't want to speak out on the mic and honestly i understand why um the context is a bit different the context it's, it's a small it's, milieu it's it's a it's a small milieu the market is more difficult and You're in a province where the government won't even recognize there's, there's systemic racism and you have a lot of people that don't believe it. It's just recently there are things you have, you've told me that happened to you 15, 20 years ago in the TV business. I'm surprised that you say that because you were witness to a lot of the stuff. Yes, but it was, but it, I, it was amplified, yeah. meaning I knew some of the things, but I didn't know all I, of these all of things. But I think, Martine, 
looking back at it, the reason why I sometimes didn't say anything, mm -hmm. first of all, it's humiliating. Mm -hmm. It is. So there's that part. And I think that when we say things out loud, when we share it, it makes it real. Right. And by me not saying anything, it was also a way for me to protect myself and think, you know, it's not happening. Yeah, it's a defense it's, mechanism. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what triggered my sort of breakdown mm -hmm. in the middle of the summer because I was hearing all sorts of people and reading op-eds and reading all sorts of things of people finally speaking out about their microaggressions, about their stories. And it reminded me of stuff I had gone through mm -hmm. or stuff my friends and family had gone through. And one night I just started crying I, I called you by the way mm -hmm. and our two other best friends nobody answered mm -hmm. but that was a hint but <laughs> but I remember it feeling like a tornado starting from the pit of my stomach going all the way up to my head and I was like what is going on and it's only hours later that I realized that everything I had suppressed came out that that mm -hmm. night that mm -hmm. evening I think that what I realized is how many times I was put down and how they would allow themselves to talk to me in a tone and a matter that they didn't use with others. Mm. The fact that I was told that, you know, you're black and so I don't have a lot of blacks around me living in, in the area where I am. So I don't know how people can actually relate to you. Mm. And this was coming from my boss who I was working like a mad woman I in terms of I would go beyond and above what was asked for me. It, Things know, like people that got more than I did and for did, the exact same job. So paid more. Paid more, got better opportunities. But so, these are s so small compared to what others are, are going so through. This, so, so I just want to make sure because we get it. Like know. it's not, nobody's comparing that to the Rodney King beating. But mm -hmm. it's still real. Mm -hmm. It's your reality. Mm -hmm. And I always feel like the heads of television, the heads of radio think that it's only black people that want to hear from black people. No, there are white people also that want to hear different takes from different experiences. Mm -hmm. different. And so diversity is a plus. Mm, yeah. We shouldn't have to be, first of all, no one's begging, but we shouldn't have to ask for it so many times. It's good for me, but it's also good for you. It's about the human experience. So this is what we want to see and hear and read in the media. Yeah, and, and we've seen in the last couple of weeks some media trying to make some changes. Mm -hmm. I'm very careful with my words because I don't know if they're... Uh, cosmetics? <laughs> yes, cosmetics or if they're really permanent changes. But, you know, when you look at all the cover of magazines, especially mm -hmm. here in Quebec, I was really surprised. Never seen so much diversity within the same month. Uh, yes, I'm hoping this is not just a trend. Time will tell. Time will tell. Time, time will tell. So Isabel, one of the ways you and I have been trying to make sense of everything that's been going on is, is by reading the various op-eds and it's mm -hmm. gotten us through many things. And I'm thinking about Karim Abdul-Jabbar in the Los Angeles Times, who, who spoke about the importance of protests. I'm thinking about the Washington Post's Karen Atia. I'm thinking about Kathleen Newman-Bremang. 
And I'm thinking also about J'étouffe by Raoul Peck. Uh, J'étouffe, which means I, I'm, I am suffocating. And that was published in media in France. And I'm thinking about Dany Laferrière, who's a, obviously this great writer, member of l'Académie Française, and who wrote an op-ed so powerful. It was published in four different newspapers in Canada, yeah. two newspapers in, in, in France on the same day. And one of the other voices that's really helped me grasp this moment, and I know it's the same for you, Isabel, because we've spoken about it so many times, is Roxane Gay. Yeah, absolutely, because she has a way of diagnosing our times with this this incisive precision, I would say. Uh, a lot of people know her as a best-selling author of the books uh, Bad Feminist, Hunger, and more. But you know what? Her more recent op-eds in the New York Times really got me saying at times, oh, thank you for saying out loud what I'm thinking. You know, whether it was about the corporate world or about this being a bittersweet moment. I mean, I could go on and on, but I won't because we really want to talk to her, right? <laughs> so I think it's also worth noting that she's the second fellow Haitian that we've managed to get on the show. And we're really proud of that. Yeah, we did it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Roxanne, welcome to Seat at the Table. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We feel we should be having some barbanco with you while we're having this conversation. I don't think we should be doing anything else, quite frankly. <laughs> okay, I'll be right back. <laughs> I'll go get it. Roxanne, it's been a heavy year. How would you describe the emotions that you've been going through in 2020? You know, 2020 has been a year that has been entirely overwhelming and Honestly, I feel really hopeless and helpless. And I know that's a luxury, but every time I open the news and I see yeah. how terrible things are in literally every realm. So, you know, not only is it the political climate, it's the environment and the country is burning and there are floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and it just seems like maybe this is indeed the end times. And there doesn't seem to be any sort of hope because there is no reason why Donald Trump should be reelected based on polling and common sense. And yet, I think a lot of us are fairly certain he is going to be reelected because white people are racist. And so, you know, it's just an overwhelming year. It's an overwhelming thing to see fascism happening and authoritarianism happening and no one's willing to stop it. Uh, so, mm. yeah, it's just overwhelming. And what do you get out of writing these op-eds in these particular times that you do not get out of writing short stories, for example, or writing books? Well, you know, I do it because... I see something happening in the world that we need to respond to, that, that something needs to be said. And I just get pushed to the point where I think I have to say something. I, I don't know that I get any pleasure out of it. Uh, I am grateful that I have the, I hate the word platform, but that I do have the audience and the platform that I do uh, so that I can try and make a small dent in, in the, just tyranny of everything happening right now. Uh, you know, I think everyone wants an opportunity to use their voice and be heard. And there's an immediacy with uh, opinion writing that you will not necessarily get from writing books or short fiction. A lot of us realize that if things continue as they are, there may not 
there may not be any going back from it. Mm. I think this is that one moment in our lifetimes where you have to make the stand, even if you're gritting your teeth while doing it and absolutely just get to the other side this is how martina and i decided to do this show in this season based on the black lives matter movement because we felt that we couldn't stay still and not say anything and not mm -hmm. try to understand what's going on and so the the urgency that we felt in doing the show roxanne you mentioned you you feel that urgency as well mm. and and there's a lot of stake yes but do you find is there a difference in the responsibility of opinion writing in such turbulent times and the responsibility as well of, of uh, op-ed editors, for example. No, I think, well, I mean, the thing is, I think we should have always had the same responsibility and care that we're taking now that, I mean, throughout history, I think we should have always been as careful as we need to be right now. I think that there is an increased responsibility, though, on the part of opinion editors. So much is at stake that you can't let irresponsible opinion writing into the world. Paul Krugman, a columnist at the New York Times, wrote that there was no... Uh, anti-Muslim sentiment or violence after 9-11 and yep. you know it's one thing to have an opinion but that's not an opinion that's genuinely a factual it is a historical it is a lie it is wrong yep. and no editor should have allowed that no but, copy yeah. editor should have like not flagged that and so you know the New York Times keeps stepping in it over and over again and it's just like and I write for the New York Times and Mm -hmm. My process is wildly different. My work is edited and fact-checked. And, mm -hmm. you know, it seems like the rules are different for white men. They get to yeah. sort of push whatever bullshit they want into the world. Huh. How many black writers do you know have the latitude that Paul Krugman has? And how long can he hide behind his, 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 uh, his yeah. awards? <laughs> right. I don't know any writer that has that latitude. Maybe Ta-Nehisi Coates. But even then, he's held to a standard that no one else is held to. Of course, the black tax. Yeah. yeah. We all know the black tax. And it's, you know, a very high price that we pay for having an opinion. Um, mm -hmm. I write this column for the Times now called Work Friend, where I give workplace advice. <laughs> And even there, I, I'm held to an unreasonable standard. Every single predecessor was chose to take the column in a sort of humorous direction and use sarcasm and pith. And I think that's great. But, uh, you know, I'm very funny, but I decided to just use less humor and more sort of I'm actually going to answer the question that's being asked here. And <laughs> the readers lose their shit every time. Like, I wrote... <laughs> in response to a rabbi last week who was having issues with his cantor in his synagogue. And I knew he was a man because I had, he didn't write to me anonymously. He just wanted to be anonymous in the printing of the letter. And I got like 10 emails from people saying, not all rabbis are men. And I was, so I had to go back in and put a note in saying, I know it's a man. Like I don't get given the benefit of the doubt, even though I'm a public feminist. So, like, mm -hmm. in what world would I not know that rabbis can be women? Also, my partner's Jewish. So, like, I'm pretty clear <laughs> on at least some of the basic mechanisms of this world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, every time this happens, it's every week. It's something that people grab onto and, and harangue me for. And I just think none of my predecessors dealt with this. Mm. They, not, no. they would never deal with any of this level of nitpicking. Mm. And it, it just gets exhausting when you know the rules are different and that you're held to a, an unachievable standard. It just starts to feel really overwhelming and defeating to even tr bother. 
And, and the fact that you're naming it, Roxanne, and others have named that black tax and have, have named that bigger magnifying glass that we have over us, do you think that will change? No, I do not. Not until some other things about our culture change. I, you know, what, And what's interesting is I actually don't think that we should lower ourselves to be as mediocre as white men. I, I think that they <laughs> should raise themselves to be as excellent as black people. Yeah. And... Um, How do you really feel about it, Roxanne? Yeah. <laughs> Not clear. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I, I guess I could be a little, I could be a little no, more I strident. Love, no, I, we love this about you. We love this about you. But, you know, I think I, I'd like to believe that things will change because something happened in the last two, three months in the media world. Mm-hmm. For Martina and I, we recall the moment where, for example, we saw Gail King get really emotional the day after George Floyd was murdered and there was the Central Park situation. And, you know, there was these particular moment for black anchors and black journalists. Do you have this particular time, this moment in media that you recall where you said things are different, things things are happening? I think it's been a slow burn, I, but I do think things have changed. But again, you know, the thing is, I think all of these things have happened, but they've happened with black media. Mm-hmm. White media mm-hmm. are still doing the same bullshit they always do. Mm-hmm. And they've given a little bit of attention to Black Lives Matter and to what's happening with voter disenfranchisement in various states across mm-hmm. the United States and the pandemic. But for the most part, a lot of them are more interested in prioritizing access to the current administration than telling truths. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're still believing that there are both sides. Like, there, there are no two sides to racism. Either you're racist or you're not. Either you think mm-hmm. people of color are human or you don't. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to see them entertain this and, and call that objectivity is so frustrating and i do think that we have to have hope we have to believe change is possible otherwise what are we doing Mm -hmm. but i don't know how we do it how we have hope every day when there's so much overwhelming evidence against it i'm elena hudgens lyle and i'm harvinder vadva we're the hosts of inappropriate questions and we're back with season three With some fantastic guests, we break down questions like... Is asking where are you from appropriate small talk? Is it okay to ask a co-worker how much do you make? Should you ask a polyamorous person, do you get jealous? Inappropriate Questions Season 3. Available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. How can the media take charge in this? Like... What is it going to take? Because, you know, we're not only, Isabel and I are not only in the media, we're fans. So for us, you know, this is where we get a lot of our cues and we understand the power of media. But what has to change in the new in the newsroom besides the obvious of more diversity? Mm. Is there one thing? Is there one catalyst that the structural change? Yeah, yeah. Like that you would say, aha, now I believe things are going to change in newsrooms. I honestly don't think it's possible, just like I don't think police reform is possible. I think it has to be abolished and rebuilt. I just Mm -hmm. don't think you can reform corrupt systems. Mm -hmm. You know, with news media, we see that they try to diversify newsrooms, but what they consider diversity is bringing in one black person. And they don't do anything to think about inclusion and equity, Mm -hmm. and they don't do anything to think about retention. And so they set these people up for failure. 
And then they overlook that there are Asian people in the world and Indian people, South Asians, um, East Asians, and there's no representation there. And then there's no ideological diversity either. Mm-hmm. And so Which, and it, it's not about conservative versus liberal. I mean, there are different ideologies even within those camps, and we don't see enough of a spectrum of intellectual thought. And so until people recognize exactly how much work is needed. I just don't know that it's possible to reform these systems, but it would be great to start with holding the media accountable for irresponsible writing and broadcasting and saying, you know, that's not okay. And Mm -hmm. then having consequences for it. In terms of what publicity? So, because I don't see how the consequences can come otherwise from taking money away from, from media. Well, I think the consequences can come from, like, if you write a column where you say there was no anti-Muslim violence after 9-11, you don't get a column anymore. Stop giving these people platforms. Stop Mm -hmm. giving him that reach. He has 4.6 million followers on Twitter and many more readers. And is the other solution to forget mainstream and go more into having our own type of media? I think it's a solution, but I'm a realist. And so I know that people who are further left of me would say, yes, burn it all down and let's build our own stuff. But nothing has the reach of mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And nothing has the, like when I look at the numbers for what my work in the Times does versus anywhere else, I mean, it's a factor of 10. And mm-hmm. so it's not fair to tell us, oh, go start your own thing and then spend the next 100 years building it up to what it is in the mainstream, Mm -hmm. we don't have that kind of time. And so, and I also think it lets them off the hook. Right. And that's not fair. I think we should do both. I think we should try and reform these major institutions. And I think we should also build our own media Mm. and make sure that it is, that it is supported as well as these major institutions. And so how do you feel when you see Vanity Fair naming a woman of color as editor-in-chief or when you see Bon Appetit naming a, a black woman, what do you have hope when you see that or you think it's just cosmetic? Oh, I don't think it's cosmetic at all. I think it's great. I think the better question, though, is how are they being supported? Are they being paid what yeah. their white male predecessors were being paid? Mm-hmm. And how long of a runway are they going to get to succeed? So, it, you know, a great example is... Trevor Noah, he was given a long runway to succeed as he took over Mm -hmm. The Daily Show. Because taking over Jon Stewart's job, those were really big shoes to fill. And was going to have to actually replace those shoes with his own shoes. Mm -hmm. And he was given the time to do that. And all of these people who are being brought in now to these legacy publications need to be given that same consideration. You cannot Mm -hmm. set someone up for failure and say, oh, if you don't hit our benchmarks within six months or a year, you're gone. Sometimes mm-hmm. it takes more than that to change a culture, especially mm-hmm. in an industry where lead times, like you can come in as editor now and still be publishing work that your predecessor accepted for the next year. And mm-hmm. so you have to be given the, the resources to succeed. But I'm deeply mm-hmm. encouraged by the editor of Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. um, the editor of Bon Appetit. And so we're seeing some really great movement and I'm excited about it. 
And yeah. I, I hope we see more of this. I really do. Absolutely. And you know what? I'm, what you're saying about giving time, we also have to give time to the public in terms of we're asking for more diverse stories to be told fictionally and non-fictionally on television, for example. But, but also the thing is, it's not the thing with diversity on, on our screens, for example. It's what television bosses need to understand is that It's not only blacks that want to see black families. Whites also want to see diversity. And I think that's one of the disconnect. This is what, what was never understood, I believe. Yeah, I agree. Powers that be have very narrow understandings of what diversity, equity, and inclusion are and what they should look like and who needs it. It's not just so a young black girl or a young Bangladeshi girl can see herself represented. That's mm -hmm. important, though. That's incredibly important. But it's also important that white people understand that we are their equals, we are their peers, and that our lives may look different, but we're all human. And like, learn to celebrate those differences. I, I've been talking a lot about Audre Lorde this week, and one of the things I keep coming back to and that I thought about a lot while I was assembling the, the reader was how much she honored difference as a source of strength. And when we have diverse representation in media and film and television and literature it really contributes to showing people the ways in which our differences are strengths that we should yeah. not be afraid of one another and we do not need to demean one another for the ways in which we are different instead we need to celebrate and honor these differences learn about them audrey lord was talking about this 30 40 years ago and i wish that more people would get on board with that because mm -hmm. she was right Is that why you feel a bit hopeless and helpless? Because you, you, the things we're asking for, we've been asking for? I think in part I feel defeated because we're still talking about the same things Audre Lorde was. But it's not just that. We were, talk we're talking about the same things that, frankly, Sojourner Truth was talking about. Like, we can go way back. And I think this year I felt particularly hopeless because it's the centennial of white women's suffrage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there have been a lot of celebrations. And there's always this sort of, there's always an acknowledgement that black women didn't get the right to vote until much later. But I don't think it, it's enough. Like, you shouldn't be celebrating the centennial until 2065, because if we don't all have the right to vote, then none of us have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. And it's great that women, white women, achieve suffrage. It's great. But is it? I mean, when you consider that they deliberately told black women to wait, that we'll get to you later, and we're supposed to be okay with that, uh, just, it's, it's a bitter pill to swallow. And so that, I think that's why I'm feeling hopeless. But even though I'm feeling hopeless, I'm not doing nothing because hopelessness is a luxury. Like, mm. there are so many people who, who cannot just feel hopeless and have everything turn out okay. So do you find that you have a burden as, as a black person in working, you know, in media and having to always talk about what's wrong? Yeah, it's a really, it, it is a burden. And I'm, I mean, I'm lucky that I get to bear that burden and, and be compensated for it. Like, because, <laughs> you know, I, I get paid to write uh, as we all should. But it's also like beyond that, it's not enough. Like, there's no amount of money that can give you enough energy to have to talk about racism, homophobia, misogyny, and uh, transphobia, and all of these other bigotries without, like, getting exhausted. 
mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you can't buy your way out of the emotional labor and the emotional toll that it takes. So uh, it's exhausting and I'm tired of having to be this person and I'm tired of being so sentient that like when I see bigotry, I feel like, oh my God, are we going to not talk about this or, or what? I feel this mm-hmm. compulsion to talk about it. And I, you know, I, there are times when I just feel like, man, I really just want to sit back and mindlessly enjoy the world the way everyone else, not everyone, but the way that great many other yeah. people do. You're getting ready to release the book, How to Be Heard. Besides mental health, what are the stories that are not being reported enough? I think that, you know, the the quieter forms of racism that are actually not quiet at all, we don't talk enough about the microaggressions. You know, people just hear the word microaggression and they, they stop listening. But microaggressions are real. The, the black tax, I don't think we talk nearly enough about that. The fact that diversity is not just about black and white, that there are Latinos in the world and, um, you know, people from all other walks of life. I, I don't think we talk about that enough. I think that there is a childcare crisis in this country that is exploding, probably less to a lesser extent in Canada, because, you know, Canada at least understands that if there's a pandemic, we have to come up with solutions that serve people. But here, a lot of parents are being forced to school their children at home on computers while also working either at home or not. And parents are coming apart at the edges. My friends who are parents are so close to losing their shit entirely. And those are the good parents. So what's going on in the abusive households? And we're just seeing that there is no social net here. And we're seeing it in terms of unemployment and the lines at the food banks and the eviction crisis and the student loan crisis and the looming credit card debt crisis. But I don't think we're seeing enough media personalities getting into like really what's at stake here and really how bad things are and just how dire things are going to get toward the end of the year. I think it's going to be a very dark Christmas for a lot of families. So I'm just worried about all of it. And I wish that we were talking more about it. Um, People are really desperate. And I think those of us who have enough savings to get through this and are still making money, it's easy to forget that there are millions and millions of people, not only in the United States, but around the world who are unemployed or underemployed and are dealing with unimaginable crises. And um, it's just frustrating. We know, and and you know what? It reminds me about the tweet I showed Martine this week that you wrote. You said, I don't know how black people are supposed to stay sane for the rest of the year or the decade. Or the decade. Let's all hope that the light at the end of the tunnel will come much sooner than later, Roxanne. I hope This so. This is really what I'm hoping. I hope that Americans vote Donald Trump out of office. I hope that he leaves peacefully. I I hope that Joe Biden surprises us and is less centrist than he is and does some truly radical things like Institute Medicare for All. So I'm really hoping that these things happen. And then if they don't, I'm hoping that we fucking riot. Or you can move to Canada. Yes. Um, If Donald Trump is reelected, my wife and I are leaving this country. I've, I've never said that before in my life, but I can't stay here and 
I just refuse. I will not continue to spend this much tax dollars on a country that does not believe I deserve to live and that my brothers and my parents and uh, anyone who looks like me deserves to live. Um, I just won't do it. So I don't know how or when or how long it will take to leave the United States. I mean, I think it's easier said than done. I think a lot of people are like, I'm leaving. I understand that it's a process, that it might take years. I mean, first you have to find somewhere to go that will take you. And right now, nobody wants Americans. Um, uh, we do. We, we'll have you. We'll Ca take you. Canada will have you, Roxanne. Oh, good. We're not even, this is not even flattery. This is just a fact. Well, Canada is our first choice because it's closest to our families. But mm -hmm. if not, we'll, I don't know, maybe Italy. Just go hang out and eat well, in the Tuscan countryside yeah. and drink all the well, time. Well, that works for us because we'll do a follow-up <laughs> interview in person. Yes. <laughs> so that works. Oh, my gosh. Okay, Roxanne, uh, our show is called Seat at the Table. So what does that mean to you? A uh, seat at the table means that you are part of a conversation and that you have as much a say as anyone else around the table. Thank you so Thank much, Roxanne. You. This was a pleasure, really. Likewise. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Roxanne Gay is a best-selling author, notably of Bad Feminist and Hunger, and she is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, where she talks about the intersections of identity and culture. And also in the New York Times, she has an advice column called Work Friend, where she gives practical, tactical advice on the office, on money, on careers, and on work and life balance, which absolutely doesn't exist. But that's a whole, that's a whole <laughs> other episode. We'll also be looking out for The Banks, which is a movie Roxanne Gay will executive produce based on the comic series she wrote. And if you don't, do follow her on Twitter at rgay. And that's it for season two of Seat at the Table. What? Uh, yes, already. But you know what, Martin? I'm so happy I got to do this with you. And mm -hmm. I feel that, um, first of all, it got me thinking a lot. And I find that I've changed over the last couple of weeks. And the world around us has started to change. Just from the time, think about when we had the idea of doing this and we started recording Seat at the Table to today. Many things have happened. Corporations mm -hmm. have been making changes. We saw NBA players and professional players take a stand. I, I mean, I'm, I'm actually feeling hopeful a lot more than Roxanne, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm hopeful, too. I was hopeful when we started. Um, but it was a little bit like a roller coaster in the sense that throughout the recording, throughout the season, we, we saw great moments of hope. Mm -hmm. And then moments of despair. I think yeah. that, you know, there were additional uh, killings by police of unarmed black, um, men. black men and the Breonna Taylor verdict that is completely unsatisfying. And it just reminded me that not every win feels like a victory. And I think that mm -hmm. was, you know, the bottom of the mountain for me. But there, there were some peaks. And, and uh, you know, uh, as I said before, I, I do feel hopeful, but I think the work doesn't stop. I, I don't think we're going to wake up to, you know, in a month, in a year saying, guys, we did it. No, I don't think you know? so. I don't, <laughs> I don't think, think we're it's going to see this in our lifetime. You, you know, um, but we have the tools and, and we, we've learned to listen, which I think is at the at the basis of, of all the solutions. There's an election, an American election coming up that scares me to death. 
Um, but I think from that, what we have to remember here in Canada is to not only vote, but why not also go into politics if we want to change things or support um, people around us that are thinking of going into politics? I mean, changes happen at every level. So whether it's municipal, uh, provincial, or, or federal, let's just do it. Let's be more forward in what we're thinking. And also, let's remember that uh, it takes more courage to act than to complain. And I think, Martine, that there will be for me a before and after seat mm -hmm. at the table and after 2020 in the sense that there are things I think that I used to accept and I used to keep silent that I won't anymore. And I know that not only do I have to do it for myself, but I have to do it in order to make things change around And so little things, little gestures, the little comments that I was getting, either at work or, mm -hmm. you know, on the streets or wherever, I, I think I have to speak up. And doing this series has given me the tools and the courage also to stand up. Mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, I, I feel the same way. I think all our guests are so courageous mm -hmm. uh, because they've spoken up, because they've actually acted. Uh, it's very easy to tweet and to hashtag Black Lives Matter, but that cannot be the only thing that we do. We no. have we have to do more than that. And that's, you know, I've taken from the guests that, that courage and also seeing how they were able to pinpoint what their forces were what platforms they had and how to use those. And it's a lesson, as you know, I, like you, I think uh, there's a before season two and there's an after season two. Um, it's the same thing, um, less BS and <laughs> more action. And that's a lesson. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, I started also this season saying that I was motivated a lot by, by my kids and, you know, the world I want them to grow up in. And, um, That's also the reason why I think I want to stand up more and say what I think, because I want them to learn how to do it for themselves also. Right. I, I won't forget that sentence that Balarama Holness said to me. And at the moment, I challenged it, but it stayed with me when he said, I've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Mm -hmm. And um, I've been thinking a lot about that sentence and what it means. And I think that it's going to take energy. Just like, yeah. they, you know, Saran, Gabrielesi and, and Balarama Wholeness showed us, it's going to take sacrifices, just like Sandy Hudson mm -hmm. also talked to us. She is the founder, co-founder of Black yeah. Lives Matter here in Canada. And we need to listen to people like Robin Maynard, yes. who have been on the ground and doing yeah. the work. And, and also, you know, talking to Marcus Samuelson, there was a lot of hope in the sense that he decided to, you know, join uh the media that was uh the you know the first of the reckoning and decided to make changes from the inside and i think there's a lot of value in that and, and what about george the poet and then george <gasps> the poet everything about george <laughs> about george the poet i know i mean he's wise and then you know i i always i said often it's not only the message it's the way that you deliver the message you want people yeah. to listen to you there's a way to say it it's yeah. a tango you have to be able to 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 read the room and fill the room and imagine if we were all capable of looking at things the way george the poet does mm. i mean we would be so much better off yeah and i think if we had more fire like roxanne gay mm -hmm. things would move forward quicker Also, yes, delivery of the message is, is important, but sometimes you, there are things you just can't sugarcoat. 
And so um, use your platform if you have one. Create a platform if you don't have one. And, you know, listen to this season over and over and over again. Like like we're going to do. Uh, I, I listen to some of the episodes and I actually take notes. Really? And so, yeah, none of you, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't. Well, I hope I hope the <laughs> listeners will continue these conversations at home and uh, with their loved ones. I know that Martina and I will continue having these conversations. So it, w- it was, and it was really fun, Isabel, to yeah. uh, to do this with you again. It's a privilege. Uh, the topics were tough, and it was a very difficult season. Huh? And and then. It was tough, and we've said it before. Man, we, we're still friends. We're still friends, and we, we <laughs> that was a challenge. Uh, but we were confronted to ideas with uh, by our producer, Melissa, and then, you know, Justin and Eunice and all these people who work with us who pushed us to, to sometimes go outside of our comfort zone. And um, it's good because I had you up afterwards to console me. <laughs> and I had the same here. So thank you, everyone. Cheers. Seat at the Table is hosted and produced by me, Martine Saint-Victor. And also by me, Isabelle Racicot. The show is also produced by Melissa Fundira, Eunice Kim, and Justin Doucet. Our mixer is Crystal Duhem. Technical work this week by Pierre Plante. Audio clips courtesy of CTV, CBS, and CNN. Phil Long is our video producer. Ben Shannon designed our artwork. Special thanks to Cecil Fernandez, Joanna Landsberg, and Amanda Cox. Tina Verma is our senior producer and the executive producer of CBC Podcast is Arf Nurani. Our senior director is Leslie Merklinger. And a big thanks to the researchers at CBC Radio Archives and Visual Resources. You can also reach us on Facebook at CBC Seat at the Table or tweet us. And don't forget to use the hashtag SeatCBC. Au revoir. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.